At an early stage company, there's only three things you need to do to really thrive. And those are really hard things, but there's only three of them. So in some sense, all those are proxies for finding product market fit. One of the reasons I see founders burn out at the later stages, because they're dealing with all sorts of things that they really hate doing. And they actually don't get to go and do the stuff that they think is fun or the stuff that they think that they're really good at. I think the core thing that has been emphasized to me in the past that's been really useful is just an ongoing emphasis on focus. Like, what is the one thing that you need to do that's useful to somebody? From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, Managing Partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. As we're getting close to the holidays, the team at Founder Real Talk wanted to give back to our loyal listeners. We've procured 20 copies of the High Growth Handbook, a must-read for any founder looking to scale their business written by the guest of today's show, Elad Gill. If you'd like a signed copy of Elad's book, please email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com with your favorite episode and why. We'll select the top 20 responses and mail a copy to you. Please include your mailing address. Also, keep an eye out for the Founder Real Talk recommended reading list, a collection of all the books and resources recommended by past Founder Real Talk guests. You can find that on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com. It'll make a great list for the holidays. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Today, I'm delighted to have Elad Gill as our guest on Founder Real Talk. This is a salon episode where rather than discussing a founder's journey, we focus on a specific topic that founders deal with and seek assistance on. Elad is a former founder himself. He co-founded and ran Color Genomics, And prior to that, he founded and ran Mixer Labs, which he sold to Twitter. Elad was then VP of Corporate Strategy at Twitter. And earlier in his career, he spent several years at Google, where he started the mobile team, helped acquire the Android team, and was also a product manager. Elad's also had a very successful career as a personal investor, an advisor to many startups such as Stripe and Pinterest, and also several GGV portfolio companies like Airbnb, Coinbase, Square, Wish, and Opendoor. In fact, I first met Elad at the introduction of Eric Wu, the founder and CEO of Opendoor, who many of you may recall was a very popular guest on a past episode of Founder Real Talk. So with all of Elad's experience, he's become a guru of scaling. His recent book, High Growth Handbook, is a must-read for any startup founder starting to scale or hoping to get to that point one day. The book's also highly relevant for execs at high-growth startups. And this is the topic of today's Founder Real Talk Salon episode, Keys to Scaling Your Business. Elad, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Ah, thanks so much for having me. So first, I'd love to ask, like, what was the inspiration for you writing the High Growth Handbook? And, and maybe you could flesh out a little bit what you mean when you talk about high growth. What does that stage look like to you? And what does a company need to become before it considers itself high growth? Sure, yeah, no, so I, I had a few direct personal experiences with very fast-growing companies. So. I sold my startup to Twitter when Twitter was 90 people, and two and a half years later, it was around 1,500 people. I similarly joined Google at around 1,500, and uh, when I left three and a half years later, it was 15,000. So they wow. added you know, 13,000 people over three <laughs> years. 
And then some of the companies that I invested in, I invested in quite early. You know, I invested in Stripe when it was eight people, Wish when it was one person, Airbnb when it was eight people. And uh, different companies ended up seeing very similar patterns when it came to growth. You know, you, you'd, you'd see the same common things happening over and over again. And so originally, um, the genesis of the book was just me sitting down over Christmas break and banging out, you know, 150 pages just on different aspects of scaling. And I actually had an outline that was three times longer than the book, um, and I ended up cutting most of it. But you know, that was really the origin. Was it just like for early stage companies? There's common questions for later stage companies. There's also common issues. Yeah, and I, as I mentioned, mentioned to you earlier when we were chatting, I, I found the book to be super helpful myself. And what I love is how you're able to toggle between like very specific and granular sort of recommendations and things that founders need to think about on the one hand and also on the other get into much meatier kind of bigger picture topics. And so for all your founders out there, it's a must read, but you got to be ready to take in a lot of information and it's super helpful, but also something that you don't need to read cover to cover. You can kind of consume a chapter at a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's definitely the intention is you can just flip to a chapter on financing or a chapter on M&A or a chapter on board. And one thing that I tried to do was avoid platitudes. So there's, you know, no a players hire A players because you know nobody writes them an A player on their resume and you actually will believe them. Right. And then similarly, there's a bunch of interviews interwoven with about uh, 14 different people in terms of different scaling aspects. So you know, it's, it's there's a section on board, and then Reed Hoffman talks about what he looks for in a board member or the like. So maybe we can start just to, to set definitions. Like when you think of high growth, is there is there a phase before high growth? Because every company aspires to be high growth. But like, when do I know if I'm an exec at a high growth company or a founder that I've hit it? Great question, because I think there's lots of different definitions of fast growth in a company. It could be that you're scaling your customers quickly or revenue quickly, or you could be internationalizing. It could be a variety of things that you're doing. The way that I think about it is in terms of team size, because I think that the book is really meant to deal with the complexity of the business and complexity of the team as things scale up. So, for example, if you're a 12 person consumer app and you've added 100 million users, you're growing extremely fast. But at 12 people, you're just not going to be facing the same issues. So, to some extent, the lens is this is a company that's going from 10 to 50 to 100 to 1,000 people over the course of a few years. And this book is really meant to capture those sorts of challenges. Mm -hmm. And it seems like kind of post product market fit as well is kind of a is is a catch. Uh, or at least a, a benchmark that uh, you, you talk about in the book is like this is really for companies that have gotten past that stage. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. You have to be product market fit because uh, otherwise, if you add you know a thousand people, you'll just burn through all your cash and die a miserable death. And so, um, this is definitely meant to your point to be post product market fit, fast growing, and you're dealing with a lot of new challenges around your org structure, the different functions you need to hire, buying other companies, you know, all the things that tend to crop up, adding product lines, internationalizing, right. like it's a set of very common things. Okay, great. Well, let, let's let's pick off a couple of those things in this episode. So, first thing I wanted to talk about is the role of a leader. Mm. You know, in many cases still the founder/CEO, but any leader really in a in a fast growth, high growth situation. Maybe you could start with you know what priorities change, mm. and how does the role change of that leader as you progress from startup to high growth company? Yeah, if you think about it, at an early stage company, there's only three things you need to do to really thrive, and you know those are really hard things. But there's only three of them. One is find product market fit. Two is make sure that you have enough money to make it to product market fit. And three is don't fight with your co-founder. 
because usually that leads to a blow up or it slows everything down and then you don't find product market fit. So in some sense, all those are proxies for finding product market fit. Now to do that, you need to hire people, you need to sell customers, you need to do all sorts of things, but really those are the three fundamental things you need to do as a founder. As a company gets later, it gets much more complicated and the way I was sort of sum up everything that you're doing, and you know, these also apply to some of the early stage uh, companies, but the main things that you're doing is number one, you're setting the overall strategy and direction of the company and making sure that that direction is executed. Number two, you're hiring, training, retaining, and deploying talent and capital. And then lastly, you're making sure that you have enough money to survive or you're sort of you know, properly capitalized to do the things you need to do. And then I guess there's actually a fourth that people tend to talk about a lot less, which is at some point you start playing a little bit of the role of the chief psychiatrist or psychologist of the company, depending on what you ascribe to. And um, really you have to start thinking about people very deeply mm-hmm. and you also have to make this transition of thinking of your company as sort of a second product on top of the product that you're selling to customers. In other words, what's a roadmap for your company and for your people? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very big transition for mm-hmm. many uh, CEOs. And um, you know, just pulling something from the book, in addition to all those things, like in your interview with Sam Altman, he sums it up pretty succinctly and says, look, the CEO really has one job in a high-growth company, and that's to make sure the company wins. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of things have to line up for the company to win, but when you know the the, the history books are written mm-hmm. on a, a founder slash CEO of a, of a high growth company, what the people need to say happened well for the company to have won? It's a great question because I think it depends a little bit on your definition of winning and what the various shareholders and stakeholders of the company actually care about. Mm-hmm. And so you know, one could argue that if what you really wanted to do is establish a lifestyle business, and you were able to employ a couple people and make money and provide for your family, that's winning, right? And so I think winning is in some sense defined by um, the lens of what you and the people you're working with want to accomplish. I think in the context of sort of venture-backed Silicon Valley companies, usually winning means three things. One is building a truly outsized revenue stream, cash flow stream, and you know a sort of large global company around mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, that you're you know, providing something that's valuable for people, you're helping people at some scale, you're doing something that's actually uh, good somehow for people. And then third, you know, that you're providing for the people who are involved with the company, be they employees or be they customers. And so for me, those are sort of major elements of it. I'm sure there's others, and different people define it different ways. And thinking about the evolution of the role, a lot of founders start you know, with a superpower around understanding a market or a technology or a product and how that, you know, different manifestations of somewhat the same thing, really understanding what needs to be built to solve a very specific problem, be it a, a consumer problem or a business problem. Does that gene ever go away in a startup or in, in a high growth situation? Does that need to continue? Does the leader need to evolve his or her own skill set beyond just having that superpower? Yeah, I think you either need to evolve beyond it or you need to hire up a team that can handle the aspects of the scaled company that you either can't or don't want to do. So often, one of the reasons I see founders burn out at the later stages, because they're dealing with all sorts of things that they really hate doing, and they're doing it for most of their day, and they actually don't get to go and do the stuff that they think is fun, or the stuff that they think that they're really good at. And so I think really the mind shift that has to happen is that startups are a team effort, and you want to look for people who can complement the different aspects of what you're good at with what they're fantastic at, and then just empower them to do those jobs. So for example, 
I think, you know, there's been sort of the rise of the role of the COO ever since, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg started working with Sheryl Sandberg. Suddenly you no longer had to replace CEOs. You could you could complement them with them. CEOs. Yeah. And I think that was a really important transition because suddenly you could really free up these founders to focus on product or to focus on market, in some cases to focus on sales, right? But it's really to free them up to the, do the fundamental things that they love to do and all the process and all the things that they may not be as amenable to. And you know, some founders grow into those things and they really enjoy them, but many don't. You sort of have another person or multiple people who can take that on for you. Got it. Well, this, this sort of alludes to another challenge that founders and leaders seem to have as companies evolve into this stage, which is time management. Mm. You talk a lot about that in your book. Any tricks that come to mind for you that are important to master as a leader as your company starts to scale? Yeah, a lot of these things I think are actually also applicable to early stage companies. They just don't feel as existential uh, because yeah. you have less distractions externally. But often what happens is uh, when a company hits even 20, 30 people, I find that a common exercise that I'll end up doing with a CEO is, or a founder CEO is sit down and just go through their calendar and ask, what are you really spending your time on? And is it the most important thing? And then also, what are the meetings that you're in consistently that you actually shouldn't be in anymore? Do you really need to be in every single discussion of some you know, minor engineering issue? Or do you really need to be part of very early hiring huddles before it gets to you? Or whatever it is. Like, There's all sorts of things that could be parts of those things. And so often you can free up a lot of time just by doing a calendar audit. You know, that would be one example of a tool. I think hiring a chief of staff or somebody to sort of tackle a variety of things for you is another. Actually, we did at my company Color when we were just five or six people. We hired somebody who's effectively a, a fantastic generalist. And she took on all sorts of different things for the company that it made sense for her to do. And that was a way to also get more leverage on time. And so I think there's a variety of things that could be done at any scale. Mm. You know, the the biggest one when all said and done though is also delegation and learning how to do that well and how much rip to give people. And you know, in the early stages of a company, you actually probably can't hire very good executive talent. Like there's no reason for somebody who's running a multi-hundred person team or multi-thousand person team to join a five-person startup. It's a bad fit for them. It's a it's a big decrease in scope and everything else. But once you get to a breakout company and things are really working and you have product market fit, you can hire these exceptional people. And then the question is, how do you enable them to really do their job without getting in their way? And that's a whole other thing that many founders have to learn. Okay, I want to hit the pause button on that because I, I do want to talk about scaling your team as, an, as another part of this conversation. But you, you hit on a question I was going to ask around the rise of the chief of staff. I'm mm. seeing more and more CEOs of companies that I work with hire a chief of staff or recruit a chief of staff from somebody internally. What's your take on that role? You know, some people kind of scoff at it and say it's it's like overly indulgent, but I also see real value in coming from those folks who who have hired or, or mm-hmm. trained chief of staff. What what do you think about the role? What should somebody look for in that role? And do you think it's is it kind of someone who should be on a rotation or is it is it a full time job with some career path? Yeah, I think there's different substantiations of that role. And so even at very large companies, you look at Intel and all the executives at Intel have chiefs of staff and they basically use it as a training mechanism for the next generation of, okay. of leadership. So there are actually a number of large companies where that role exists. I think uh, at Google, Sundar has one as well currently. I could be wrong, but I think he had one for a bit. You know, There's other ways to sort of create additional bandwidth for a founder. And that could be through other types of support staff or it could be you know, a uh, in some sense more advanced version of sort of uh, chief of staff 
is what's often ends up being like a VP strategy or in some companies it's a VP product. Matt Kohler played this role at Facebook. Ruchi Sangvi played it at Dropbox. I played part of it at Twitter. Or I and uh, Ali Raghani, who was uh, CEO for a while, we both sort of uh, played this role, which is somebody that you throw into either orgs or new functional areas that need to get built out or turned around, right? Either you need to fix something or you need to scale it. And basically providing sort of generalist executive bandwidth to dive into issues. Mm-hmm. And that's not a chief of staff, usually that's a VP level role mm-hmm. that you know has other uh, pluses to it. But I think in general, the real question is how do you get bandwidth and how do you fill gaps that exist either on the executive team layer or in terms of your own time as a, as a CEO? So, in terms of chief of staff specifically, the things that I would look for there is somebody who is extremely detail oriented can do multiple different types of work or functions. They may need to help with a partnership or deal. They may need to go and prepare a board deck. Um, They may need to arrange an event. I mean, they have to be somebody who, frankly, is really willing to do a variety of different jobs and doesn't feel like anything is beneath them, which, honestly, you want for every role in your startup, but it's especially important for this one. And at the same time, it needs to be somebody that you can communicate with and trust very strongly because often they end up with higher stature in the organization than they've necessarily earned through experience or anything else. And so you have to make sure that, that you can trust them and they come to you with the right things and that they interact in the right way with the people around them. The places where I've seen this where the chief of staff role go bad is when that person assumes that they're, in some sense, more important than they are. Because right. they're empowered by the CEO, many people will be differential to them and they'll interpret that as a reflection of their skills versus a reflection of their role. And that's where I've seen it go bad, but okay. I think it usually works. That's a, that's a really uh, really subtle point, but an important one, I'm sure, in finding the right person for the role. How about the role of a coach or a mentor for a CEO as a company scaling? Have you seen those work, and do you, uh, you know, suggest those to, to the folks you work with in that role, or, or yeah. do you feel like they're overused? And- I know a few CEOs who really like them. I generally am not a fan of uh, CEO coaches. I find most of them often don't have context or know what they're talking about or have necessarily run long, large orgs themselves. So I'm skeptical about it. I know a few really good CEOs who swear by them. So again, it's I think the best generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice, right? Everything is contextual. I do think mentors are real. And I do think having a set of advisors that you go to or peers that you go to for insights or thoughts around specific topics that they've also seen or that you know they're one or two years ahead of you. So They've just been through the things that you've been through and they've done all the research and they can pass it back to you. I think those are really valuable mechanisms, but I am more skeptical about uh, coaches. Got it. Okay. Let's shift gears now and talk a little about building out your executive team in the growth phase of a company's life. How do you know when it's the right time to add you know, a specific executive? Is there something you look for or recommend people look for? I think it's hard to have a generic pattern because many of these things are contextual. I think there's a few roles that people tend to add too late on average. So like HR, people tend to wait too long. A CFO or uh, somebody on the finance side, often people wait a little bit longer than they should. So I do think there's common roles that the CEO may not understand very well if they haven't operated in a large organization. And therefore those roles get forgotten for longer than they should. But again, it's very contextual. So it depends on the size of the org and, and what you're actually working on because you may not need a VP of sales if you have a consumer app. So it really depends on what you're doing as well. So okay, well let, let's let's fast forward to the that point where you've decided as a leader to go hire a functional expert to to run, you know, as a VP or chief level person to run run a function in a company. 
let, let's say it's a function you personally have no experience with, be it finance, be it engineering, uh, product, whatever it is. How do you close that gap to make sure you actually hire the right person? Any, any suggestions there? There's sort of three or four things that you should really be doing. The first thing is you should figure out what the role actually means. So I think there's often misconceptions about what a role does if you've never done the role yourself. So my general advice would be go and talk to three or four people who are known as being very excellent at that role. So for example, you're, you want to interview a CFO, go and talk to three or four great CFOs, not to recruit them because you don't want to necessarily poach them, especially if somebody made an intro to help you understand this, but more just to ask them, what should I be looking for at this scale? What companies should I look at who have the right types of people for me? Uh, what are the interview questions I should be asking? You know, so you can really learn a lot from that. The second thing I would do is I would then take that and write it up as a job rec. I'd basically say, I got all this great input from people. Let me actually write out what I think that role is now, and then let me circulate it to the team of people who are going to be interviewing for this role so we have a common understanding of what we're actually looking for. You know, I've been in situations where I hired a VP of BD, for example, and different people on the team had radically different understandings of what business development is. Some thought it was sales, right. some thought it was customer support. Like, you know, your team may not know if most of your team similarly has not worked with that function and you're right. starting to build things out. So I'd write up that job rack. And then lastly, I actually think, you know, as you're interviewing people, I would check back in on that rack and compare it to what you're actually looking for. And see if you're getting the right candidates, if you're managing the, the process properly. And I actually think that for executive hires, retained searches and search firms actually work very well. I think they work very badly for individual contributors, but for execs, I actually think it's a good way to go. And obviously, you want to plug into your investors and other people you know for leads, but search firms also tend to work pretty well for these things. Yeah. And, and search firms can kind of catalyze a process i found which is super helpful uh, just cuz it's it's hard to add somebody and so having that forcing function of that process is is very valuable and to the point earlier you mentioned about recruiting sort of a, a a few folks who may understand a function better than you do by virtue of operating in that environment and can help you understand the role those people may also in my experience have good recommendations for you and you can sometimes use those people as as a first or last screen in the process as you're looking for the right person to fit your role. Um, one thing Keith Raboy mentioned in the interview in your book was an interview question he really loves to ask people about potential execs that you know, you're, you're evaluating for your company is, would you come work for us if we hired this mm. person? Which mm-hmm. I thought was really a compelling, great way to crystallize for people like, do you love this person and do you think they're you know, the, the type of person you'd follow? Because mm-hmm. that's really a big part of the job if, you, if you're an exec. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And actually, sometimes one way that you can sometimes tell if you hired the wrong person is if they're unable to hire a great team underneath them. In other words, if they can't hire great senior people in a function, that suggests there's something wrong with them relative to that function. I want to ask you one more question about execs and as you screen for, for execs for your company. There's always going to be trade-offs when you look at people. Nobody's perfect, right? And along the continuum of this person has great functional expertise and experience for the role I need them to play on the one hand, and all the way on the other hand, like this person would be a great fit in the company culturally. I find there's often that that is a trade-off that you often have to make when you're looking at hiring an exec. Like person seems great, but gosh, would they fit exactly in, in my company? How do you think about that trade-off and what do you recommend to folks who are being forced to make that trade-off with hires at the executive level? 
I would look for both. And I know that you're asking what's the real <laughs> trade-off you should make. Well, I think when all is said and done, it depends on what you mean by fit and where is fit off. And is it, wow, this person just operates in such a different way that it just makes no sense? Or is it, you know, this person is coming out of an org with a very strong culture and they've imprinted on that culture, but we think we can break them of it. And so if you look, for example, at people who've spent 10 years at Google or 10 years at McKinsey or 10 years at any of these places with very strong culture, they tend to be kind of rough in their first rollout and then great in their second rollout because they've been broken of all the very strong cultural attributes and they're reminded of the fact that there's more than one way to do things. And some of them adapt immediately, right? Like I'm, I'm not saying it's a, it's a hard and fast rule. There just takes a little bit of a cultural adjustment period when you move from one strong culture to another. And so the thing that I would ask is, do I think this person will adapt over time? And are the places where I don't think there is fit ones that can change, or is it something really fundamental? And if it's something fundamental, I think it, you, you just can't hire that person. If you think that there's some, some changes that can be made because they'll be in a different context, then I think it's okay to proceed. In general, I think people don't give themselves enough permission to make mistakes in hiring. And I'm not saying you should make a lot of mistakes, but you know, if you're hiring a 10-person executive team and one or two of the people don't work out, it's painful, but it's okay. And you can recover. You can recover, and maybe if all 10 of them are perfect, you were perhaps not aggressive enough in mm. terms of your hiring practices. Mm. So you know, I do think that you need to also give yourself permission to both make mistakes but then correct them quickly. Oh, that's a great point. Let's talk a little bit about dealing with your board as a leader in a, in a high-growth situation. In the book, you talk a lot about independent board members and the role of an independent board member. And I'm going to read a quote from the book. Uh, it says, The best scenario is to find someone for the independent role that your VC respects, but who you know is an entrepreneur at heart and who will at least be more entrepreneur-friendly. So that sounds like you know somebody who could be hard to find. They're kind of on that razor's edge of VCs like them, but I know they're really, in their heart, they're kind of on my team. Talk a little bit about that dichotomy and you know an independent, maybe thinking of an independent, you don't need to name names, who's done a really good job on a board. Mm-hmm. Like what... How have you seen that person walk that tightrope and, and add the value you hope they add? Yeah, I think ultimately uh, the role of the independent is to represent all shareholders. And so to some extent they should be on the side of both preferred and common and everybody simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their role is providing good governance to the company. And that's true of every board member. But what happens sometimes, not always, is there will be a set of executives or people in the industry who have over and over and over again worked with the same venture capitalists, and sometimes it's very good because they have a lot of confidence in that person, but sometimes they actually are a bit beholden to that person who's going to put them on two other boards right. or is going to help them in different ways. So really, right. my advice is more to avoid somebody who feels like they owe the VC more than they owe the company. And really what you want to find is people who feel that they're going to do the right thing for the company, and the right thing, frankly, may not be the thing that you as the founder wants. Right? Like It, it should actually be somebody who truly is trying to be objective. But at the same time, it's somebody who can relate to the founder journey, how tough it is, how lonely the CEO role is. You yep. know, somebody who viscerally understands that I think makes a really big difference in terms of how they think about the choices they'll then make or how they'll broach certain topics as a board member. So that that's really what I meant to optimize for. In terms of an example, I think Sue Wagner, who's on the board of Color, has been really exceptional as an independent. She's a co-founder of BlackRock and was CEO there for many years, mm-hmm. and then she is on the boards of Apple and Swiss Re and BlackRock still. And so she's been an outstanding independent and she's brought a very different perspective to the table, but I think she's always been thinking, first and foremost, what's right for the company. And I think that's the important lens. Got it. 
in the interview you did with Reed Hoffman in the book regarding boards, he talks about, hey, you know, sometimes the board, the board's either going to be green, yellow, or red on the CEO, mm. meaning like a huge fan, not sure, or uh-oh, we need to make a change. In the uh-oh, we need to make a change scenario, he said something really interesting in the book. He basically said, when you're looking for a CEO, what you really need to be recruiting for is effectively a co-founder of the company. Uh, obviously, someone who wasn't there for the founding moment, but someone who's going to behave and act like a co-founder. And I guess, you know, for him, you know, at LinkedIn, that was the situation, that's, and that's how he feels about it. Mm-hmm. Do you buy that? Uh, it seems like a, a very lofty vision. And you know, any recommendations for CEOs themselves, founders who are CEOs who know maybe their time is coming, mm-hmm. and how they think about that process? Yeah, I think Reed is one of the smartest people on these sorts of topics. He wrote uh, Blitzscaling uh, recently, which is a great book on scaling companies that I, I definitely recommend everybody read. You know, I think ultimately part of the reason that he said that, and this is me sort of interpreting, is that you know if you look at some of the scenarios where you have a quote unquote hired gun CEO come in, really they don't act like a true owner of the company and somebody who's constantly uh, willing to blow things up to take things to that next 10x step of value or outcome or impact. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you find is that often if you hire in a CEO, they're going to act in some ways that are more timid. They're not necessarily going to be thinking as long-term. They're going to be focusing a bit more short-term in terms of the day-to-day things that they choose to do. They may not have the same product vision of a founder, and they may not be willing to as aggressively slaughter the right sacred cows and so I think a lot of my interpretation is that those are the characteristics that he was suggesting to look for. And that's very different from you know the ego-driven CEO who the first thing they do when they come in is redo the logo of the company. Like right. Whenever I see that, I'm like, uh-oh. uh-oh. You know? yeah. <laughs> is that really the most important thing to do? Like The first thing you do is change the logo, come on. You know? That so sounds I like an episode of Silicon Valley or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It happened recently at one well-known company. And so you're just like, come on. Like, you know, there's so many other things you could be doing right now. You know, uh, that, that is my interpretation of, of that intent. Okay, let's shift gears and, and let me ask you a little bit about fundraising. You wrote a blog post pretty recently about the rise of the preemptive financing. Talk a little bit about what you meant by that and whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. And if you're a founder and your company is getting preemptive offers, how you ought to think about that? Yeah, so one of the interesting shifts that's happened is there's been a huge rise in the amount of capital that each individual venture fund has been raising. And as part of that, I've seen probably over the last six months or so, people offering to do the company's next round much sooner than they normally would have in terms of additional data or additional progress being made. In other words, you raise a seed round, and then three months later you suddenly get a term sheet for a Series A, when normally you would have waited a year to see if the company's hit additional milestones or right. there's more proof that the thing is working. And so there are these preemptive rounds happening. I don't know that they're good or bad. I think it's just contextually you should figure out what to do and does it make sense for you to do. The positive is you may get the next round's valuation without the progress of the next round. So as a founder, you're well capitalized and I think money itself can be de-risking as long as you don't spend it foolishly. And if it's somebody that you really like and really trust and you know you want to work with that investor, then it may work out great. Like You don't have to wait a year to work with them. You can work with them now and they can start helping the company earlier. So I think there's a lot of positives to it. There's sort of two forms of negatives that can come out of it. Negative one is maybe you should have shut down the company or sold it because it's not going to work, and the additional capital may lock you in 
to a longer time frame of working on something and wasting some of the best years of your life. And I actually think that's happening a lot right now mm. in terms of companies that can just keep raising money, often as safes or other instruments. But I think that a lot of companies are going two, three years longer than they should. And so that's just tying up people's lives much mm. longer than they should. That's one risk. The other risk is if it's the same venture fund preempting over and over and over again, and they're just buying up more and more of the company, you have less people helping you in terms of diversity of investors. But also, they may gain more and more control over you. They may add board seats. They may do other things. And over time, that may put you in a negative position because then it can be you versus them instead of you and a collaborative set of people that you're working with, none of which have ultimate power over you. So I do think it depends a little bit on the context. Okay, we've come to the point of uh, the episode where we're going to put you in the hot seat and ask you a couple of rapid-fire questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, We'll spend about a minute on each. So the first question is, I was going to ask a favorite book or blog that you recommend for founders. You just mentioned blitzscaling, so let's let's put that one on the side. Let's say a book or blog other than blitzscaling. Yeah, I mean, obviously I really enjoy your podcast at GGV. I enjoy the A16Z podcast, so I think those are great. I think for books, there, there's Peter Thiel's Zero to One is obviously a classic. I think hard things are, about how things are great. The Andy Grove books are great, so mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of great content out there. Okay, awesome. And thanks for the plug on our podcast. Okay, second question. A growth stage company you admire and why? There's two companies that come to mind immediately. One is Coinbase. I think Brian's done an amazing job just in terms of building out a really high caliber executive team over a short period of time. And they've made really smart strategic moves in terms of some of the acquisitions they've been doing. And so I think they've really aggressively gone after the the crypto market as a whole. And I think that's been really smart. And then secondly, I think Stripe uh, has really continued to impress me in terms of the caliber of people that they attract at mm. all levels, their execution, and just I think that company can go into so many different directions at scale that it's really hitting an exciting moment as uh, potentially a generational company. Those are both great companies. We're only invested in one of those, Coinbase. Uh, but it's never we, too late. It's never too late. <laughs> uh, though we, we just uh, recorded an interview with Stripe uh, for the podcast as well. So not sure if that'll hit before this one, but we definitely recognize how incredible that company is. Those are great answers. Okay, last question for you. A piece of advice you were given as an entrepreneur that has served you well that you like to give to others? I think the core thing that has been emphasized to me in the past that's been really useful is just an ongoing emphasis on focus. Like, What is the one thing that you need to do that's useful to somebody? Or what's the one use case that you're filling? Not the big story of the vision and how the market's interesting and what are you going to do long term and all these big picture things that people ask about or use to sell what they're doing. What is the singular use case that people are going to use your product for? Super helpful. Distill it down, simplify, and make sure you, you don't lose sight of that one thing. And often there's one reason that people will use your product. It's not 10 reasons. And people mm-hmm. get confused and they come up with these giant feature lists. But what is that one need that you're really deeply meeting? And how are you going to meet it? Not what are the 20 things that you're going to do that incrementally each thing makes you 10% better. Like you want that one thing that makes you 10x better. Interesting. And that's actually harder to do than to have the long list, right? To really focus on the one thing and figure out how to continually improve that one thing. Yeah, most companies start off with a singular use case. Yeah, great. Elad, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for your time. I think that everybody listening is going to feel like they're way better prepared to grow their company and see it scale and do so the right way. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll I'll make one more plug, The High Growth Handbook, an incredible read and a must read for, for anybody aspiring to or in the middle of the growth stage. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. 
If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>